ride with me in my foul life. Podcast world, what's up? Chad Belding back at you. The Foul Life Podcast, quarantined edition. Actually, we haven't done a lot of, we've never done a podcast over the phone or over an app like Zoom or Skype or some of the ones you see out there. And in times like this, when we can't travel, a lot of our guests that we have invited on cannot travel. We we go to plan B and we've tried to set it up to the best of our ability. And we feel that we've got the audio down, the audio capture down. And we've got a lot of guests that we are excited to bring you. And our first one is going to be the man that you see us hunting with all the time in the state of California, Rock Merlot. Rock Merlot owns Merlot Waterfowl. He has a big farming operation. He's got his hands in a bunch of stuff. Um, you talk to Rock, he is very well versed in farming and fatherhood and tradition and heritage. And he has an unbelievable passion for philanthropy and helping others, getting new people involved in the outdoors and the hunting aspect. And he just loves to have his passion passed down to a lot of different people. And he has an unbelievable passion for duck hunting. So we are going to start what we're going to call the essentials of duck hunting. We're going to talk to folks across the country regarding what we feel are the essential parts of duck hunting. And obviously there's going to be more. And if you think of more, let us know and we'll tap into those. But we're going to start with an outfitter that part of his livelihood and revenue depends on the essentials of duck hunting. When we talk the essentials, I think of bird population and migration, obviously, and then we go into scouting and then we go into concealment and blinding up. Then we go into guns, ammo, calling, sporting dogs. And then we go into preparation and butchering and processing and serving that wild game. So to me, those are the essentials. So we're going to start this series with an outfitter that is the best in the country, in my opinion, Rock Merlo. Rock, how you doing? Pretty good, Chad. Excuse good morning. Me. Good morning. It's uh, weird times, but guys, with your personality, you don't you don't let it stop you from. I mean, I'm not saying that you're disobeying the the leadership of our country. I've been trying to have that conversation with people that it's easy to say, Oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go over and, and hang out with seven or eight people on Friday night and have drinks. Cause I know none of them have been uh, infected or affected by this coronavirus. And I'm sitting there going, they're telling us not to our leaders that have the best scientists, the best doctors um, in the world, in the oval office or in the white house every day, briefing our president and the, the leader of the free world, Donald Trump is telling us, stay at home. Don't do anything that you, you know, don't live your normal life. I I'm, I'm trying to do that to my best of my ability. And I know you are too. Yep. No, we're, we're on a little different program here. Um, you know, we're farming and we're trying to get our rice in and we have almonds and walnuts and, um, we've not slowed down. Our workers have not slowed down. We've taken precautions. We've put new protocols in place with sanitization uh, distancing our workers from each other. We've had, uh, you know, numerous meetings with them. Um, and they get it too. They know, um, what we need to do out here, uh, to keep the uh, shelves filled and the shopping centers and the stores. Uh, and we're just doing our part. Um, you know, but at the same time, um, we have not, uh, we're still turkey hunting out here. Uh, that's for the most part an individual sport or with our child. We're not, we're not involved in big group activities, uh, at CWA, California Waterfowl Association. We, uh, 
shut down all of our dinner circuit. Um, we're having our, our staff meetings now online. Uh, we have a board meeting today after this podcast at noon. We're going to have a California Waterfowl board meeting um, through WebEx. So uh, that will be a first for us. Um, so, I mean, being in the country, we're not under the same um, constraints as I think that the cities have. Um, we have a, you know, we're pretty spread out here. Um, our houses are on farms spread out. So we're not in contact with people and we can, we are truly now looking back at time, you know, being raised out here, I never really realized that this is isolation, the way I'm living. Um, you know, we have to travel to a city to see groups of people and so forth. So um, I'm pretty blessed that my life really truly hasn't changed all that much, but this is how I was raised. So Along, to along with something. that, you know, I love that. I love that that's how you were raised. And a couple thoughts come to mind is that what we take for granted in life and when little things are gone, like uh, stop at the bar for a, a five o'clock or after work for a lot of construction workers or that bar and that restaurant that are bringing in that revenue, all of a sudden they're being affected by it. And just that one guy that stops in for a five o'clock beer, not going in that restaurant. And then obviously that multiplies and, and it, it's been devastating these owners. And then the, 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 how we take it for granted of just me being able to drive over the mountain and turkey hunt with you. And you can't do that right now. I literally, you could, and you're going against a lot of protocol and there, you know, the quarantine efforts. And now they're saying 14 days quarantine. If you cross state line, you saw in Nebraska yesterday, I don't know if you saw it, but they refunded all the out of state Turkey tags in Nebraska Several bear seasons have been shut down because they want to, you know, put a stop to this virus as fast as they can. But the things we take for granted are, you know, just it, it, it's making me look at it like, man, we're very blessed to have the lives that we have and the friends that we have and the networks that we have. Because when it's gone and it's and I'm not saying it's gone, but it's it, and it's but it's been taken away in a sense to where we can't just go and, and, and meet somebody for dinner right now. And it's having that in our lives or the freedoms that we have to be a sportsman and outdoorsman in this country and our hunting rights when they're taken away, like they are right now, if I wanted to go to the Platte river area of Nebraska right now and call a, a, a Rio Turkey in, I can't. So think about, it. I mean, we're very lucky in this country. And when these freedoms are gone, it makes you sit back and think how blessed we truly are. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there is a lot of folks that they can't leave like San Francisco, you know, they're, they're stuck on an Island over there. And, uh, I don't know what that life would be like. Um, you know, I can walk out my house and I can walk into our orchards and, you know, I can be on Butte Creek this afternoon, uh, not see anyone except for a few farmers traveling up and down August Frias, uh, moving equipment. Other than that, I mean, the roads are quiet. It truly feels right now, Around here, it feels like it did back in the late 70s, early 80s when I was a child. Uh, I mean, the school, you know, both Butte College and Chico State, most all those students have gone back home. Um, so, I mean, Chico lost half its population um, pretty quick because, uh, you know, we shut everything down when it was their spring break. So, um, it's just a different lifestyle right now. I don't know. I mean, it will be interesting to see how this all plays out over time. The other part of it, what I was thinking was the provider mentality. And I know you're the same as me. You've been eating a lot of wild game. Yeah. Oh, every meal, 
every meal Isn't it awesome? we're cooking in the house now three meals a day i mean we, we for for literally 19 days now we've had three meals a day cooking at the house rico's you know he's doing pretty good cooking uh helping out learning a lot um we eat uh venison elk our duck our speck and uh it's doing different things different dishes you know you're you're you know what you're doing on instagram with you know the different recipes what uh kendrick and skidmark are doing on their uh instagram you know showing us how to cook different things i mean it's now we get to sit down slow down and we actually can kind of see what y'all are doing um, and you guys are helping out a lot i mean the daily you know instagram stories that y'all are doing um they're awesome i mean you know the, the trader cooking is is fantastic and i think we're lucky to have the the tools today that we would not have had 20 years ago um because you know 20 years ago was a cheap you know gas barbecue and a charcoal kettle um you know you can't cook you know what we're doing today with those old tools um you know and it helps a lot. i agree and think about I've heard this talked about also is what if this happened in the eighties, you know, right now you can grab your phone and have access to content, like at the, you know, snap of your finger. What would you be doing in the eighties? Now you're probably different. If this would have happened in the eighties, you're probably doing the same thing, but you're not going to have your mind, you know, obviously as, as, as full as it is right now with your farming operation and, and all of your businesses. But if this didn't, if this did happen in the eighties and we are quarantined in the stay home message, there's a lot more to do in our homes at this time in, in society than there was in the eighties. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that there's, you know, I think civilization's taking a step back and, you know, looking within seeing what's important. Um, I know I'm having conversations with friends now that, uh, were different, you know, a month ago. Um, you know, I got my friends in Newport, uh, down in Southern California and in the Bay Area. Um, everybody's hunkered down. Uh, you know, and they're checking in. Everybody's checking in with each other. Uh, we're very fortunate. I only know uh, out of all my groups of friends and family, I only really know one person right now that has a friend or family member with the virus. And uh, they're doing well. Uh, they were scared there for a little while. They were up in Seattle. but. Um, other than that, it's, um, it's just a different time, man. It's kind of scary. Uh, I, uh, but like I said, it's just different out here in the country. We're, um, we're taking some extreme precautions. I mean, we're washing everything. Um, we have alcohol, uh, that we're spraying on gas pumps and our pickups and squirt bottles. We got the hand sanitizer. We got the wipes I mean, we're doing all that. Um, we have masks. We had, you know, we have masks for, you know, on our ranches um, just because we deal with so many pesticides and, and the dust that's harvest and stuff. So, you know, when it came to the, you know, personal protective equipment, we were very set up for that. Um, we took some masks and we dropped them off at the hospital here a week and a half ago because um, we had some extras. Uh, but we did. We kept some back for our employees and you know, they're still going. But, you know, a lot of these things that people are putting in place today, um, 
we're, we've been protecting ourselves like this for quite some time um, just because of the way that we have to do a lot of our farming applications. So no, it makes total sense. I mean, all we can do is <clears throat> like we talked about, follow our leadership in the country, you know, and trust in the, in the medical and the science world that, that, you know, that they're finding the cure and that I'm, I'm just going to keep doing what they're telling me to do. I'm not going to go against it. And, you know, I think that we're going to come out of this stronger. I think we're going to uh, not just economically, not just business wise, but community wise and, and, and the, and the, and the desire to, to appreciate what we have more. I think it's going to teach a lot of us lessons. It might teach somebody like you to maybe slow down a little bit more and, and smell the roses when it's time to do so. It might do the same thing to somebody like me. It might teach somebody, you know, you know, just better techniques or better applications throughout their days of, of how to live life. So I don't know. I think everything happens for a reason and maybe, you know, maybe this is a little drastic, but it's, it's teaching me a lot of lessons in a hurry, you know, being alone for the last 18 days and, and losing touch with the network that I, I literally watch things just disappear off my calendar. I was marking things off without doing them. It was, it was NRA convention, Nashville crossed out. It was Turkey hunt, Kentucky crossed out Turkey hunt, Tennessee crossed out Turkey hunt, Florida crossed out Turkey hunt, California crossed out concert crossed. I mean, it was just <clears throat> the things that I get to do so often I take them for granted some. And then when it was gone, I was like, wow, man, look at this. If I didn't, if I wasn't blessed to have what I had, I mean, this is how my schedule would look all the time. And I just watched things just disappear off of it. So it's teaching me to slow down and appreciate the, the things that I have in life and that what we've built and that the team that we have and the friends and the family that have supported us so much that, you know, without that stuff, life is really meaningless. So it's a, it's a, it's a lesson learned for sure. But all we can do, like I said, is, is follow our leadership and, and just keep praying, keep the good Lord in mind and, and keep, you know, just to help out as much as we can. We're, we're talking about doing some really cool things after that. I want to run by you for the first responders, for the EMTs, for the doctors and the nurses. I was, I've been working with volunteers of America and a couple different organizations to put together some pretty cool initiatives um, when this thing starts to subside, but getting into one of our biggest passions is duck hunting, goose hunting. You have an unbelievable operation that, you know, people can see it in, in, in whether it's a foul life episode or CWA magazine or any of the other things that you do with your outreach, but you seem to be very tied in to your waterfowl operation to where at the age you are now and the experience level you are now, you seem like you're almost just getting started to where every day is is like a just this uh party for you it's a lot of work but you love it you you like it builds up you're like a kid in a candy store you're teaching rico and joey and other kids kids and women getting them involved and you're in your affiliation as chairman of the board for the california waterfowl association but you seem to have this like underlying passion that um at, at, at this age, a lot of people would be like, well, you know, I'm not as mad at them anymore. I'm not going to hunt them as hard as I do. And I'm not saying that you pull the trigger as much as you used to, but you're hunting every day. You're working in the waterfowl business every day and probably more so now every day year round than you were when you even started the waterfowl company. You're working CWA and messaging and politics and farmers and water rights and everything that goes into the entire endeavor of CWA. 
And then on top of that, you're booking groups, you're working with guides, you're, you're making sure your equipment is kept up. You're working with corporate sponsors and our partners like Benelli and federal and, and Traeger. And you're do, you got a lot of balls in the air, but you're excited every day. So you're working the waterfowl world every day, but there still has to be the essential part of the business of offering a waterfowl hunting experience to strangers, to friends, to clients that are booking hunts through you, that are leasing blinds from you. And that's kind of what I want to talk to you because without the essentials and you as the owner and the operator and really the accelerator or the, the engine that makes all of this run for Merlot Waterfowl and Farming, you really have to pay attention to those essentials. And that's why I wanted to start this series with you, Rock, is we're friends first and foremost, but I look up to you as far as all of your knowledge in those essentials of what it takes to put somebody on a hunt to where you're going to get to experience first the 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 mother nature, the pure power and and just you know the splendor of mother nature, but second, the chance to pull the trigger and harvest some specs or mallard. So when you talk about the essentials, do you think about them a lot? Are you watching the migration? Are you watching the weather? Are you are you paying attention to what's going to put you in the best position to capitalize on a daily basis? Yeah, well, that's a lot. Um, yeah, so um, it is a 365 <clears throat> job, um, but truly, to me, it's not a job. Um, I wouldn't know what to do with my life if I didn't have waterfowling and my, you know, basically all my hunting and fishing in my life. Um, I've built my companies around um waterfowl first um it is important it has to do with the farming um it is what i don't golf um i don't travel a lot um, around the world i don't do a lot of deep sea fishing and stuff like that and so you know one my recreation is the outdoors two it is my strong passion three it ties directly into all my farming, um, whether it be um, this season is turkey season and all the orchards that we farm and that we have uh, and doing the turkey hunts with the kids uh, on those orchards. Um, most of them are connected to either a river or a creek or some type of riparian area. Um, when you start tying in the ag and the recreation hunting side uh, to it, uh, you start seeing where the balance has to be protected. Uh, you know, there are a fair number of growers across the U.S. that, you know, and up in Canada, that they've taken a lot of that riparian out to grow crops. Um, we have to do that as well. I mean, we had to have that expansion back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s um, to, to, to plan for population growth where we have today. We're seeing the value of the American farmer um, today across the U.S. Um, my, I feel my job um, with CWA and the other nonprofits that I work with in agriculture is to just try to find that balance. Um, you, um, we have to have both. And, and you can have both. Uh, we do a lot of protection of our riparian habitat along the edges of our orchards. Um, we, um, we protect them. Uh, there's areas we just don't need to go into uh, to grow something because we know we won't get a return out of it. 
So we leave them and then we enhance the waterfowl or the, the wildlife and then whether it be deer or turkeys. Um, and then that way we can use them um, for recreation. And now, uh, you know, definitely we're uh, eating a lot of them. Um, we've already had turkey twice uh, since season opened a week ago. And um, it's, uh, it's, just a, it's just a way of life, man. Um, I think you've said it since I've met you, it's our lifestyle. And I'm not sure, like I said at the beginning of this, I would know any different. Uh, I'd be lost without it, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I love it. So do you think about, do you think about the essentials daily when you're, when you're building this business of what it's going to take to be successful? Yeah. I mean, the numbers always, um, the numbers always mattered. Um, but I, I did start this out back in 92 when I basically took off on my own, I, um, I, 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 I learned what it was like to not make a profit. I understood that um, breaking even for a few years was at the end of the day was going to be profiting for me. Um, it was building a business um, along the lines. Um, I've had some pretty significant losses and some different things, whether it be crops or bad hunting seasons. Uh, but I was able to uh, diversify um, from the beginning. And, you know, so learning um, how to diversify out uh, with the hunting and then growing the different commodities and some other types of um, service uh, businesses uh, in farming helped over time. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know what we're going to uh, deal with next hunting season. I don't know if this uh, is going to carry on uh, the restrictions we're under right now and so forth. Um, but we're, we're looking at that. We're planning for it. Um, there at California Waterfowl Association, um, we went into, uh, you know, this, this hit us, bam, suddenly. So the staff and the board, we went into um, planning mode um, almost immediately once we saw that this was going to be a long-term, um, long-term lifestyle for us. Uh, first, we thought it was going to be 14 days, and then we kind of looked at it at 30, and then we just said, you know what? This could last 100-plus days in through the summer. So we have to plan different initiatives to um, keep the fundraising machine going. So um, there are a lot of sectors in the U.S. that are – um, doing very well right now. Um, there are others that are struggling, uh, but you know what? I think at the end of the day, it's the American virtues that are going to succeed here. I think, as you said, we're going to come out of this stronger. I think business is adapting uh, right now, um, and we're able to adapt because of devices like we're on here now, the computer, our iPhones, and so forth, we can um, we can access information immediately uh, to help us make decisions. Um, you know, and so I think that's what I'm doing. I mean, I'm definitely not um, you know as refined as I would have liked to have been, college educated, and so forth. But I think that me and my friends, um, the folks I work with at CWA, um, we look to all of us as a group coming together to come up with solutions. And, you know, we have a lot of good minds. 
Um, and I think there's, like you said, there's a lot of good minds out there across the U.S. helping us with this. So how do you, take me through how you apply this to the outfitting. I want to, I want to get into the essentials because I want to make sure that I have an understanding of how you're looking at these. Number one, I want to make sure that, you know, we're in the scenario that the migration's on and that can be altered. I get it, but we're always watching the weather. We're watching the birds. This is all part of scouting. Our first essential is scouting. So with scouting comes these apps that we can go on weather bug or the weather channel, weather underground, whatever they are watching the weather, watching the migration. What are the birds doing before that brings in your network? Do you have a communication network to be able to call somebody north of you? What are the birds doing? You got anybody in Canada you can call? Are they, are they through Southern Saskatchewan or Southern Alberta or out Manitoba yet? Scouting is everything. It doesn't just mean getting in your truck and going to look at the local farm pond or the local cornfield and seeing that the birds are in there. The duck hunter has to have a mindset. The outfitter like you has to have a mindset of what is happening around me in my scouting endeavors. So first of all, that, that, that encounters, you know, the apps and the weather and knowing what the migration is doing. And the second part of scouting is what I just said about getting in the truck. And I want you to talk to me, how important is, you know, that scouting part of your, your, you know, that scouting segment of your organization and your business with watching the weather, watching the migration. And then I want you to end it with talking about optics and being, you know, when we, we have our vortexes with us all the time and you see how, how I am, I'm always making sure that everybody's got a pair of binoculars in my truck because, you know, more, more than one set of eyes is, is a lot better. So a good pair of optics, a spotting scope, a tripod, all of that stuff. What are you doing to make sure that you're on the birds? Well, you know, shifting gears to that, the, you know, it starts back, um, we've evolved, you know, over time on our hunting. Um, you know, in the past, it was more of a, you know, harvest the rice, mow the field, start incorporating the field, turn the water on, flood everything up, throw the decoys out, and then wait for the weather to come and start hunting. Now, in our business, what we did was um, a number of years ago, um, the speckle bellies and the snow goose pops were getting so much so big um, that these populations were coming in and wiping out these fields um, as we were flooding them up. They were uh, these migrations that were coming in in October were uh, you know feeding the tow water line out. So. Uh, and why has has that occurred over the last you know ten years? Uh, well, mainly because Klamath, uh, Lower Klamath National Wildlife Refuge, in that basin up there, um, the water has been stripped from it to go down the Klamath River for the fish. So uh, there is no holding water up there for these migratory birds. So they come to the valley, and um, and it's something that has changed uh, in our migration. And we needed to adapt with that or that. So what we do now is what um, we were with you last year. And when you were here, we, we filmed on that one with the guys from Jack Daniels. Um, we um, were hunting those tow water edges now to keep these birds out of, our, out of our rice fields for our duck hunters. And we're targeting those. Um, it has, uh, it's a good time of the year. We normally are sunny. We don't have the clouds and the cover. Uh, we usually have a north wind. Uh, that helps. It's mild. Um, the setups are easy. You can drive out into the fields most of the time um, and set up ahead of the, the water line. 
So um, we've adapted in that um, stance right there. Then when we get into the regular, then as we transition into you know winter, December and January, uh, then we start getting into the more conventional scouting where we kind of pattern the birds and then we watch the weather. Um, we truly don't want to go in and hunt the geese when you have dome. The ducks are, you know, difficult as well. Uh, we try to target those days, um, you know, where we have the wind, we have a little lighter skies, or we have the strong storms. Uh, then the storms, you know, and, and then in that aspect, the mornings aren't as good as the afternoons. Um, so we kind of watch how the storm comes in and comes out. Um, I traditionally, on a storm day, I would rather um, sit the morning out, um, let the wind blow, let the rain beat down, and then um, go out about one o'clock. And most of the time, if you have a strong storm in the morning, you start to get the lightning up in the afternoon, um, and the ducks really want to work at that point. Um, and then the ones that have been wrapped up in, in tight spots and huddled together, they'll start moving around a little bit more. And, they tend to feed a little better and they don't really work the call well. Uh, but, you know, it's just adapting to every season. Last year out here in California, it was mild. Um, you know, December, January were pretty mild. Um, not much rain, um, not much snow. Uh, we had just a high dome. I think uh, 70 days of the season was some type of a high cloud cover with light winds. Um, it just was the pits didn't help us whatsoever. So a lot of the bird takes were down. The birds held up north. I mean, hey, we still had on December 10th or the 5th or 10th, um, they were still shooting pintail up in Alaska. So uh, last year, all up and down the Pacific Flyway was um, fairly mild. Um, our friends up there in Alberta, up there at Take Em Outfitters there, uh, those guys up there, they were, you know, they didn't have the snow during their whitetail season that they normally do early on. It finally came Thanksgiving. Um, but I mean, they were a little behind. So, you know, but now here in California right now, we're getting, we're getting good rain, good snow right now. We're building our snowpack up. So um, I'm looking, it's looking good for next year. I'm an optimist. So um, at least we'll have water uh, to flood up our rice fields. We're not, uh, we're coming out of the drought that we thought we were going in. Um, still, we're still critical, but um, Mother Nature is giving us a uh, wet March and looks like uh, the start of April, uh, tomorrow and Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, we're going to be pretty wet, the 3rd, 4th, and 5th of April. So we're supposed to get an inch plus of rain. So you're watching the tow water, you're watching the water lines, you're watching the migration, you're paying attention to these apps and the weather, you're looking for bluebird skies, north winds, or, you know, a, a, a big time storm. To where the birds are going to be active they're usually you know my favorite time to hunt ducks and geese if a storm is coming is probably the day before when the pressure starts to drop and before it clouds up big time but now just real quick touch on when you're in your truck what are you doing you're on your phone you're texting you're taking notes you're telling your guys hey this is what's going on in this part in this region you're in your glasses looking back across if you see some geese moving off one part of the refuges or the wildlife you know the management areas you're trying to get your guys in the right spots to make sure that you're getting on the X what's going on in your truck. What, how important are optics? Talk to me about that a little bit. So we are, um, so in the afternoons, we, we usually, if we're guiding goose hunts, um, 
we will um, we'll start looking. We have the guys on hold. Okay, so the 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 clients are. Um, every one of my clients knows that uh, this hunt could be called off at 5 p.m. in the evening because the hunt just does not come together. Um, they the birds don't come to the field that we want to hunt the next day. Um, we manage our fields in about a five to seven mile run um, where we'll have a half a dozen dry fields a year that we will not flood. Um, so we keep out probably about 1,500 to 2,000 acres of rice that is just mowed or standing stubble ready to burn in the spring. Um, and we'll manage those fields um, and we'll wait till the birds hit them just right and the population is built up enough. Um, but we also want to know where the roost is, where they're coming from. Uh, that way, if something does, you know, slip us in the morning, wind change or something like that, we know if we should be on the north end of the field or the south end of the field, um, if we should change up our spread sizes, if we should be all specs, um, if we should hunt the check line or if we're going to be in white suits and hunt in the snows. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's changing, man, daily. You know, the, the, the glasses, we like to look and we like to not get close to the fields a lot of times. So we'll sit back 15 levees and we'll kind of scan the field uh, more so to look at where the hide is. Um, how are we going to set up in the morning? Um, if we go into this paddy, is there two inches of water in it or is there a dry spot in the middle because there's a high spot in the field? Uh, does the cut, does the levee that we want to hunt on the check number five, is it? Is, is the brush thick enough on it, the grasses? Uh, you know, the, those are the things where the optics come in. Um, you know, they, they, they play a big role, um, you know, seeing where the geese are coming from. Are they coming from, you know, Bob's farm um, 10 miles away? Um, are they coming from the refuge? Um, those are things that uh, come into play. If they're coming from the refuge and uh, it's a Tuesday, they've been sitting there Monday and Tuesday, is the refuge, are they on the hunting area and they're gonna get blown up and pushed out of their 5 a.m. Um, and then they're gonna change their flight path. But those are things that where the optics come in to play is you know, kind of figuring out the flight path. Um, love the Vortex, I got a pair last year with a, a rangefinder on them. Uh, used them all through my deer and elk season. Awesome, um, we'll have a pair on the boat now. Uh, so, you know, we're putting glasses all over the place, just kind of like readers. Uh, you know, it's good to be able to look out and see things. Um, they're priced right nowadays. You know, these glasses aren't like they were good glass in the past. You know, we can get good glass now for a couple hundred bucks pair, 150 bucks. Um, so, you know, it's okay to have a few pairs. And you talked about the hide there and, and, and how you're going to hide, where you're going to hide in that field or in that check. You're using the optics to look for that, which is a great point. You know, scouting, again, is not just seeing where the birds are coming from or where they're, you know, a lot of people are get to a field late and they'll look out there and they'll see where the birds are. But the, the secret is to get there and know where they're landing and where they want to be when they get there. They might walk into a certain area, but, you know, there's a lot that goes into it. So when you move into the hide and concealment and camouflage in your operation, you have a lot of different applications of this. Again, you're hunting rice levees for ducks to where you might have a pit blind in the check or I mean, in the levee, you're, you're, you, you know, down the dike, you have 
trees to where you might just be standing up against a tree or sitting in an open blind to where you're relying on your camouflage patterns. And I know that you have really been wearing the real tree timber pattern, the max five in certain instances. Then you have places like the Butte Sink to where you might be in more of a box blind where you're depending on your camouflage again. And then the last one that you do a lot is wearing these Tyvek suits, painter suits, and hiding right in your white spread of your snow geese with all of your spec decoys, you're out front. So you you have a lot of different things to be thinking about of when you're scouting of how are we going to hide, where are we going to hide, what part of the field are we going to hide in, and how are we going to get these birds to get on us as close as we possibly can get them for really good harvestable shots. So hiding is a big part of it. Camouflage, you're depending on that on a daily basis, yeah? Yeah, no, I, I got as much camouflage in my closet as I do by the rigor civilian clothes. Um, I do. I, 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 I truly do like the timber pattern. Um, I think when Bandit came out with that pattern and uh, in their clothing from Realtree, when they got that pattern from Realtree, I think that um, really changed a lot of, of a lot of our California camo that we wear out here. Um, it fits pretty well. I mean, even in our rice fields that we're hunting in when they're chopped and chiseled, or they're burnt, um, that pattern blends really well with our soil color. So it looks very well in our, in our, you know, in our riparian habitats. Um, I, uh, I do, you know, we still have some Max 5. A lot of times, you know, you know wearing the two together works really well um, to break this up. I'm not a big single uh, pattern fan uh, around here just because a lot of our our terrain that we have is is dried up grasses on the bottom and then the trees are up above so you know wearing the timber up above and the in the uh the max five you know waders um you know in the waterfowling side that's a pretty good uh combination um the uh but you know like right now um you know the timber works great for turkey season um Works great for deer season, and I wore it when I was elk hunting uh, up in Oregon this past year. So you're right; the camo is a big part of the hide. Um, I've never been a true fan of the the digital patterns. Um, I, they have their their use, I think, up in the higher terrain. But when you can get to um, when you're when you're looking just like the tree you're standing next to. That's pretty, it doesn't get any better now. So, no, I agree 100%. And then, what about these Tyvek suits? How expensive, how much does a Tyvek suit, if I walk into a paint mark tomorrow or Sherwin Williams or Home Depot, what am I going to pay for one of them? Well, I think, I think you're about 15 bucks a suit, um, maybe 20 if you just walk in and get Are a suit. they really? Yeah, they're pretty expensive. You're going through hundreds of these uh, goose seasons. <laughs> we got, we buy them uh, through our, um, to one of our ag chem stores. So, you know, I'm getting the suits for probably, I don't know, eight bucks, you know, nine bucks, I think the suit. Um, I don't know now, you know, hey, all bets are off the store, off the table now what these suits are gonna cost. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we buy them by the case, you know. So at the beginning of the season, I'll buy five, six cases, um, usually two different sizes, and then we'll have them in the trailers, so. Um, but we did last year, we went through, I, I bet you we went through four, four cases of suits, you know, hundred and something. Um, we use them. Hopefully you get two uses out of them, two hunts. 
but if it's wet, like like when you were here two years ago when we were trying and we were laying in three inches of water, well, they're not going to last. They're going to last one hunt. So when it's drier, they'll last uh, a couple of hunts. So now on to some gear. You you obviously are hunting in all different types of conditions. Again, wet, dry, hot. Um, the, the temperatures in that part of California, they might be freezing one morning and they might be 45 for the low with a high of 60 some days. Uh, you're asking a lot out of your equipment to be versatile and adaptable. The guns that you're shooting, how important has it been to your operation to have these Benelli's, the Super Black Eagle 3's, the M2's? I, I don't want it to sound like we're just thinking, you know, like Benelli's, the, 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 you know, you have to have a Benelli to be a good duck hunter. I'm saying that we believe in Benelli because it truly is the best waterfowling gun that I've ever been around. And you've been around longer than I have in the sport and the lifestyle of duck hunting. Is it, am I, is, is the Benelli truly that legit? I know that you were a Beretta guy at one time also. I, I know that you still shoot Berettas, you know, here and there at, at different animals and, and pheasant hunts or whatever, but is the Benelli really legit? And is your team, does it, you know, fit the bill for your team and, and give you guys a better success rate in, the, in knowing that that dependability factor is going to be there on a daily basis? I have been a guide since the 80s. Um, and you're right. In, uh, in the late 70s, um, we were strong Beretta users. Uh, when the AL2 came out, um, I went from an Ithaca pump to uh, an AL2, uh, Beretta 12-gauge. And I shot that um, up till about when the SB1 came out, uh, the Benelli SB1. And then I, uh, you know, wanted the three and a half inch. Um, I liked the action of it. And uh, at that time I was shooting, I think the, I don't know, the Beretta 303, I think is what I was shooting at the time. Uh, so it was a, quite a bit of a transition. Um, it was a, a cool transition. Uh, then um, met you, and uh, so I started getting the. I went on that one hunt with you when we shot at Rancho Espon, and you brought that M2 out there, and uh, I took that M2 and I never shot it, and um, I believe I got eight for. I mean, I think I was uh, seven ducks for eight shells with it with your M2, and I fell in love with it. I mean, it was just like it's just such a a fast shooting pinpoint type gun. And then I evolved again when uh, I shot the Ethos uh, gun. Uh, so now um, I have uh, the M2, I have the Ethos, and I have the Benelli SB3. Um, I shoot all three of those guns equally well. Um, they've all been fitted for me. That's the has been I think the most important part is getting them fitted um, with the shims uh, that come with the guns is going through that uh, process. Uh, the the SB3 um, that's basically I use that gun strictly for my goose hunting, um, and um, I, I I like shooting those Federal three and a half inch twos through it. Uh, those are just stoppers you know, right there, because we do shoot a lot of wind and so forth. Um, I like my M2. I ended up getting the Rob Roberts custom uh, M2 waterfowler uh, three seasons ago, uh, uh, all finished up. 
Uh, that's just my. That's just an amazing duck gun. I love that duck gun. It's light, it's fast. Uh, it's got some pretty cool features on it. High vis sights are great. Um, now it comes to the Ethos. The Ethos, um, the Benelli Ethos. I have that in a 20 gauge. That's my upland dove gun, quell, pheasant. Uh, but now uh, it will probably be my duck gun. Uh, I am transitioning again. It feels like uh, Rob. They're at uh, Gunworks, Rob Roberts Gunworks. He has customized a Ethos 20 and 12 for me. Uh, they will be, uh, I'm putting them into the CWA auction list. I, I had Rob build 15 of these guns. Um, they're going to be the chairman of the CWA Gun of the Year, 75th anniversary guns. Um, I'm really excited about that. I've designed them out in uh, the timber pattern uh, with high vis sites. We got some cool springs in them. Um, the action's been refined. Um, Rob's done some work on the forcing cones, take some of the uh, added kick out. So um, these guns are gonna be trick. And uh, that's more than likely I'll be shooting that this duck season. Yeah, I love the ethos. I wish they made it, I wish they made it in a left-handed pattern. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, know, a, a left-handed option. But they will. I mean, it was the the SB3 when it first came out. I think you what you had a year. There was a year lag or a two year lag, and then now we get the lefties in the. Um, no, nah, that's the the SB3. The 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 Super Black Eagles are usually all launched at the same time in right and left. The the M2 is in left handed now. The the um. What am I trying to think of the. The ethos is not the 28 gauge, the 20 gauge, the 12 gauge. They don't have it. I, I, I beg George and JP and Tom every time I talk to him to please start producing the ethos. I love the way it shoots. I love shooting that 28 gauge. And with today's ammo, which you got into a little bit there was, you know, first off, you touched on Rob Roberts, his choke tubes and his shooting system is dialed in his patterning, what he does with those forcing cones, what he does with the coating, what he does with the shims, what he does with the trigger, what he does with the safety, what he does with the release tab for the action. He does a, uh, you know, the pro shop guns offered through Benelli are dialed in. And Rob Roberts is a great friend of both of ours. You guys have hit it off both times you've been around each other. And you move that into the other combination of, of the gun and the ammo is, you know, we rely on federal, obviously. And I, I honestly would say it's anybody that nothing compares to Black Cloud, whether you're shooting the regular Black Cloud with, you know, with the flex wad system in it in 20 gauge or 12 or the new TSS, the TSS you shot at, at geese and it's truly devastating turkeys it's amazing yeah. but federal uh, another great part of ours and there's another essential of duck hunting is being able to rely on your ammo to to properly and ethically dispatch to these animals with as least suffering as possible as least cripples as possible obviously we're going to get into dogs but and having that conservation tool of a good sporting dog or duck dog is key but we want those birds in the decoys and dead in the decoys when the dog goes to retrieve them so how important has federal been to you Federal's been great. And the one thing that I like about Federal, one, just so we all know, so everyone, you know, that's listening to this, um, my really good friend, Brett Crow, um, who makes, you know, duck calls here and Chico, JJ Lairs, uh, his father, John Crow, uh, had an FFL license back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, we were buying um, at wholesale federal ammunition 
back in the late 70s, I mean truckloads of it. We were filling a, um, a 10 by 20 uh, container at uh, Butte County Ammonhall Co-op with federal ammo and we were shooting, um, we were shooting, um, we were shooting the, uh, the federal, uh, God, copper plated lead back then, the two and three quarter inch, uh, sixes and fives. Um, you know, so I, I've evolved with federal along the way um, through this journey that we're at today. Uh, and I'm talking cases of federal we would shoot a year. Um, the old saying was, um, keep shooting, Larry can buy more, you know, and that was my dad. Uh, he kept us, he, he kept us in shells all season long. So then when that whole Butte Creek Gun Club kind of shut down, I was out on my own. Um, I just stuck with federal. Um, you know, there's other, you know, ammo we could get. We dived into Winchester for a little bit. Um, but then Black Cloud came out and, you know, I transitioned to that, stayed with it fully. Um, and then um, we met you guys five years ago, six years ago. Um, and then what's really helped was being able to meet um, the engineers at Federal and talking to them. Um, they are truly um, good guys that want to know what the needs of us out here uh, in the hunting world truly is. Um, you know, like when we're at the SHOT Show, uh, talking to them the importance of a three-inch 28-gauge. Um, a lot of hunters out here in California, in the Butte Sink and so forth, they're transitioning to the smaller gauges to hunt ducks in, uh, to hunt ducks with. So, you know, with that transition that's occurring right now, um, with the 28s, the 12, or the 20s, and the 410s, um, you know, I think that the, the ammunition companies, they need to hear us. Um, we want those challenges, but at the same time, we want the challenge, but you hit it spot on. We want to be able to um, harvest that bird um, effectively. We don't want the um, swim-offs and so forth or the feather puffs and nothing comes out of the air. Um, we're there to hunt, we're there to harvest our food, and we want to put it up, we want good ammunition. And I'm happy with what Federal has put out uh, the last uh, few years. The oh, TSS is amazing. It's, it's, I mean, it is, uh, you know, when I watched, uh, when I watched that turkey, you know, out there when we were doing the testing, um, with that ammunition last year and you took that turkey, you know, we were ranging it. Um, when I saw how far out you could effectively kill something with a TSS, that was it for me. I got it. Go ahead. You bought a lot of it. Yes, I got it. We we shot it this year for the, the geese, and like I said, the uh, like you said, the TSF for the geese, um, it was. I mean, it, it punches straight through. There's nothing hanging up inside the the breastplate, um, where when you go to eat it, you're finding it. Um, it it punches right through. It's 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 good ammo. Yeah, it really is, and it, 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 
it's essential to have that to be able to have your guides carrying that to you know to dispatch cripples when the you know if a flock of geese comes in and you have six or seven of your clients get into them there's going to be some cripples and your guide needs to have an ammo that's going to be dependable to get up and pattern the right way through those choke tubes through that benelli and that i always talk about that combination with the high vis sites the rob roberts all of the benelli stuff the federal i think everything that you know, that we put on our guns or into our guns is it's the proof is in the pudding. It's it, I see the results every day and the hunts that we get to experience from the flooded timber to the pea fields of Canada to your place in the Butte sink or that, you know, your rice checks there for specs. I see it daily of, of what federal does. And there's a reason why they're number one. And so we rely on that. And so moving into essentials is the vocalizations and the communication with the birds. You have some very, very good callers, including yourself. You guys call specs, you call snows, you call mallards, you whistle widgeons, you whistle sprigs, you whistle teal. There's a lot of vocabulary and vocalization going on with you and your outfit and organization at Merlot Waterfowl. You're, you guys have to be keen. You have to be proficient. You have to be up to date. You have to be speaking that language like Will Primos would say. So talk to me a little bit about you know, just the vocalizations and how key that is to mimic those birds and get their attention, keep their attention and finish them in the decoys. Well, that again, that we've evolved, um, you know, back in the the seventies and eighties, uh, basically had an old, old duck call. Um, that's what we used was the, um, was the calls that PS old made in the fifties and sixties. And they had the cork and the, you know, you had to cut the core, file the reed. Um, there were a lot of things that my, my dad would do to make these calls sound great. And dad was like the call guy. So he would tune, <laughs> you know, six to 10 guys' duck calls a week. Um, people were always bringing calls to him at the duck club. And he would sit there like the tinker at his desk and he would shave the core, make the shims, file the reeds down. Tell it sounded just right. And uh, so then uh, it was early 90s. Yeah, probably early 90s. Uh, a guy, uh, Joe Laris, came about. And uh, Joe wanted to make a duck call. And um, he Joe had a dentist uh, business where he made dentist tools, dentistry tools. And he felt that he could um, make a duck call on a lathe um, out of um, aluminum. So dad was all like, okay. So it, him and my dad, Harry Boyle, Gerald Serco, um, those were guys that were here in Chico that were um, professional duck callers. They all helped Joe with this duck call. Everybody kind of put their two cents in. I'm kind of telling you the story, how I heard it. Um, and then they made that first aluminum duck call uh, that Joe came out with. And uh, that was kind of the start of the, transition of the call industry um you know and then others kind of caught on to what joe was doing and they everybody started shifting from the wood and those plastic calls they went to aluminum for a little while and then they went to polycarbonate which i think we all know today the synthetics um, that we see you know your call company jargon um they're similar materials yeah um, the, but, the, the acrylic acrylics and um so now most of our calls are acrylics and um but out here in california um we are not just limited to one call um not like if i was hunting the trees in arkansas or just go in there with one call around my neck or a goose hunter up in canada 
um, you hit the nail on the head. We have um, we have multiple species of birds. Um, you need to be able to speak eight languages out here when it comes to waterfowling uh, because everything has its time. Um, it's like you're with me in the water spread when we took you and Francis and Brad, the Francis Air Force 24, out to my, my one blind and you saw all those swan decoys I had out there. Um, that spread, you know, I had 120 swans and 700 specks set up on it floating. And um, you got to learn how to, you know, talk swan out there to get the swans working. To, and, and that's the com that's the confidence bird to bring the speckle bellies in. So, I mean, we're doing things like that, working the widgeon to get the mallards to come in, working the teal to get the pintail to come in, working the pintail um, after you shot your one pintail to, you know, bring the widgeon in. I mean, we're doing these different calling techniques um, throughout the season uh, because we have all these birds here um, and some are confidence for the other to come in, the, the species you're targeting. Um, the mallard call is still important, um, but it is not the um, important number one call, like if you were hunting in Nebraska on the Platte River in December. I mean, there's probably not a big need for a wing setter whistle um, in uh, Nebraska on December 20th. There's not a whistling duck within 2,000 miles of there. They've migrated through Mallard call, mallard and honker. So we do, um, I did bring my lanyard. I mean, this is what, you know, one looks like here in California. It's got them all on there. Here, and, hold, that, hold that up again. I want to get a picture of that. Yeah. Hold on. I'm not very good with these phone cameras. So what do you have? What do you have on there? I want to, let me see. You got a, you have a, you have a whistle. I got my first off. I got my Haydell. I got a wood duck whistle. Is we're in the trees. We work a lot of wood ducks. And I got two different, or I got three different spec calls on here. You know, they're they're all three different tones. Okay, so we got three different spec calls on there. And then I have two different mallard calls on here. Two different tones of mallard calls. Then I got my wing setter whistle, which is right there. All the whistling ducks, and then I have my dog whistle. So on that lanyard, which is kind of a mess, um, it's menagerie of things. A lot of different calls. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of different jargon going on there, Rock. A lot of different jargon going on there. Just got my jargon call from you, and um, Rico's been blowing that. I like that small talk call that we just got from you. Um, that call is going to work really good in the pond. Um, it's soft. So uh, Rico's gotten, um, he's pretty proficient now with the one you sent him. And um, Rico knows what's up. So on that lanyard, you're, you talk about the eight languages. You don't have a swan call on there and you don't have a Canada, which in that day you're talking about referring to with Francis uh, hopping from Corning Ford. We remember the honkers. We called in that group, that eight pack and yeah. killed seven of them. And they were big honkers. And sometimes you're going to get honkers in the rice, maybe a couple yeah. lessers, but you're going to have swan. You're going to have teal. You're going to have widgeon. You're going to have sprig. So there's your whistling ducks, even though a hen teal is going to quack like a mallard, but those are your whistling ducks. And then you have <clears throat> your mallards, <clears throat> your gadwall, 
widgeon will respond to a mallard call as well. And then, you know, once in a while, you'll see some divers that you can handle with a mallard call. But then you have your whistle on there, or your wood duck whistle, because you guys do have some awesome wood duck locations for your clients. And then you have your speckle belly geese. So, and then what you're really famous for though, is your snow goose call, which is not on that lanyard because you don't need a call for that because rock Merlot is so famous for the, the annoying yet efficient <laughs> snow goose mouth call. I, yeah. I call it the annoying yet efficient, but it works and it gets their attention and it finishes them. And again, you talk about, you might not just be calling to those snows to get those to come into the decoys and light for a chance to harvest those but that's going to get the attention and the confidence of the other specs in the area. That's going to get those working. Right. Yeah. It's, it's been, you know, the voice calling, um, you know, especially the snow for what we're doing. Um, that is the make or break probably of 20% of the geese that we finish. Um, it, it, I can't explain to you enough how they react to it so differently than a call. Um, because there are mornings where it's just so calm um, and with next to no wind, high humidity, um, and that it doesn't, it's not echoey out in the field. So it's not, it's not over explicit to them where it trips them out. Um, like a lot of these snow goose calls are, um, it's more monotone because it is a true voice. So um, it helps. Um, and that's where when you heard the swan call as well, um, not sure I've ever heard, seen a manufacturer's swan call. They might be out there. Um, but we do. We work a lot of the swans and we work a lot of the snows just to gain the confidence of um, the specs. Uh, and uh, it's work. I mean, we do, we do voice calling for specs, but, um, you know, that was so long ago. There's such good spec calls now. We don't use our voice for the specs anymore. Um, my cousin Ralph still does. He's excellent at it. Um, our friend Maddie Nightingale, um, who you've heard, uh, she's an amazing spec caller with her mouth. Uh, but, uh, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, again, um, we only had a three goose limit back then. But we did all of our calling. All of our goose calling was voice calling. There just wasn't very good goose calls back then. So no, and you, you also touched in there on your swan, your swan spread and, and your, your spec floaters rig. And you work a lot with Alan Hughes, who is our operations office manager at, at Bandit and Avery. Alan knows the decoy game. He was in an original founder of Avery back in 94. And then when they started the Greenhead Gear decoy line in the early 2000s, he's seen it all with decoys. He's a hunter first and then a decoy manufacturer, but you've seen it all with decoys too. And you talk about calls evolving and, you know, turning that corner. I don't know if there's a, a bigger piece of evolvement in the waterfowl world than decoys. When you go to the retailers now and see what's on the shelves and the choices that the customer or the end consumer has to choose from now, you talk about anatomically correct and feather and texture and detail and head positions and floating decoys and full body decoys and silhouette decoys and flying decoys and flapping decoys and mojo decoys and motion. <laughs> There's so much out there. I mean, you talk, right. you talk, you talk to somebody that says, Oh man, this is, I wish I would have duck hunted in the glory days. You know, this is the glory days. We have a lot of ducks in the flyaways. We have a lot more um, dedication to conservation <clears throat> yes, there's a lot of things that could de deter the migration still, but think about the, the clothing we have and the concealment and the camouflage and everything that we have. 
um, these are the golden days of duck hunting. We can be comfortable for long periods of time. We can sound more like animals than ever. We can look like the animals now more than ever. You know what I'm saying? We can get to our blinds a lot easier and it be accessible a lot, e- a lot more than ever. Our optics are better than ever. All I'm saying is that these are the golden days. So now decoys, you use green head gear, you have spec full bodies and fully flock stuff. You have mallard floaters and you have teal decoys and widgeon decoys and sprig decoys. You have the most realistic decoy spreads with this kind of mixed bag mentality and ideology that you guys have at Merlot Waterfowl. How important is you and how key is it when people say, oh, you could kill them over tires? I don't really think you can. <laughs> that I was the old days. At one time, <laughs> you might have been able to. Yeah, yeah, that was the old days. No, and you hit it. Um, you know, I, I when when our members ask us or friends um, or call someone, you know, logs on Instagram wants to know what's a good spread. You know, I tell them, I go mix it up, man. If you're in California, you have to mix it up. Um, you know, last year ordering those four dozen spoonbill decoys and putting them in that spread that you hunted over with me, um, that. I, you cannot, they went and landed right with their decoys. Okay. So we were getting those flocks of spoonbills to finish, but then the other ducks would come in right behind them. Okay. So, you know, and, and, and that Avery, you know, that greenhead gear decoy looks so real now. And, and like you said, we put the, the flock stuff in the front of the blind and on the checks around the blind. And we had the other stuff out across the field. And, um, that blind last year, um, it was it was an impressive blind. Man. Uh, putting them swan decoys in there, that was that was key you know, with them specs. Um, the the pintail and then see, I didn't have to buy as many mallards. You didn't buy as many pintail, but you just had the widgeon, the teal, the spoonbill, the speck, the smell, the swan. Everything was out there. When you drive by a rice field on Augustrius Road on December 25th to the January 20th, you are going to see all those species in the field. They will all be sitting together. Um, I think that is where the California duck hunter has been missing it the last few years, a lot of them, is having these spreads too, they look too much alike. Um, They are pintail mallard, 12 spec decoys, six no-use decoys. I mean, if you fly around the valley, this is what you see. The pattern looks the same on each side of the levee, and every blind looks the same. Um, It's time to break it up. It's time to put more uh, decoys on the levees, fewer decoys out in the field, um, and uh, because that's where those ducks want to go. They want to jump up on them levees after, you know, December 15th, after Christmas. And they want to rest on the levees when those big storms come in or on loafing days. Uh, and it just is more realistic. So realism is the key. I don't want you to give away all your hints, Rock. I don't want a bunch of other hunters in the area knowing what we're doing. But I get it. I don't care anymore. <laughs> you don't. Want, yeah, but you got to you got to look at Rico now. He's up and coming. You got this little protege that you're bringing. Uh, you know up. what? These kids, they there's going to be advancements. Um, you know, I uh, that's the exciting thing from year to year is what what are we going to learn next year um you know what's coming up what am i going to learn next month uh you know if you have the mentality where you're just going to wait till somebody till somebody posts it um on a social media or printed in uh, a magazine 
and that's how you're going to learn. Well, you're always going to be behind the eight ball. So uh, I like to sit there and always look at the new um, that's coming, try new things, try new techniques, listen to folks like you. What are those? What are they doing back east? What are they doing in Missouri? Um, you know, that's the one beautiful thing about you know the social media now is we can spread information quick. Um, I have no problem anymore sharing uh, what I know with the younger generation. I want them to be successful. Um, you, you know, you, you nailed it at the beginning of this podcast. Um, I, this is what I do. I want people to have successful hunts. I want them to have fun. Um, but I, at the same time, I want them to realize that it's up to them to be taking someone new as well. Um, that's the only way that our lifestyle is going to succeed in the future is if we all work together and know that you have to take that neighbor child down the street or that neighbor guy or gal um, down the street that has some interest. If they have only the smallest inkling of interest of what we do, um, we need to take them, even if they don't hunt. Dress them up, put the costume on them, throw a collar around their neck, take them out with you. If they do have a hunting license, let them shoot a little bit if they got their stamps and all that. Um, but we have to get them exposed to it. I, I think that, you know, like you saw with the CWA um, college camp at Mr. Bonderson's ranch, Bird Haven, you saw what, you know, UC Davis was doing, <clears throat> bringing those kids out from the biology departments um, and allowing them to be first-time hunters. I mean, we, our retainment from there is about, I mean, I, I hope I'm saying this right. I think we're getting a 35 to 40% retainment off of that, which is new hunters coming into the field. Which These are amazing. college kids that have never hunted, okay? Um, and half of them enjoyed it, but they will never hunt. Okay, they just but they but they now they know what you and I and others are doing. Cal Waterfowl, DU, Delta. Now they understand what we're all doing uh, to promote our lifestyle and protect it. The conservation part of it. Um, we are just not out there to kill these things because we're mad at them. Um, we do it for lifestyle. We do it because we like the way they taste. Um, there is an enjoyment factor out of it where it's the bonding with family and friends. Um, there is the excitement when a child, you know, comes into their age and they take their first duck or goose. Um, you know, those are uh, points in life that you cannot forget. Nobody's going to take their memories. from you. So, you know, why I do this, why I don't mind sharing it. Um, it's just because I, I want everyone to, enjoy and you know i am 52 now and uh believe me when i was in my teens and 20s i was learning from someone okay so um we don't we don't get all these trips and all these um you know great abilities to duck call on our own um somebody's always there helping us mentorship is huge and it's we take it for granted that's another thing that we take for granted like we started this conversation that we grew up in hunting families and most of the country does not. And there's needs to be mentorship, like what you're saying with California Waterfowl and their mentor programs, like the college program at UC Davis. We met Mandy Augusta through there. Her and her, her fiance are hooked 
a lot, you know, I think it's even a little bit higher than 35% retainment. We need to check with Mueller and Carlson on that, but that those, those kind of mentorship programs, the youth camps, the women in the outdoors uh, programs that CWA is running, it's so important and vital. So kudos to you for doing that. And, and back to the essentials. Well, I, I want to, we're obviously going to have more podcasts and me and you, you and I have already discussed getting into the Klamath and what's going on with that initiative with CWA, getting into the politics, getting into the mentorship programs. We're going to discuss all that over the next couple months and hopefully the quarantine's over by then and we can do it in person. But back to the essentials, you just went over decoys. It's huge, but I touched on a little bit gear, your waders you're wearing today, Rocky, your jackets, your weatherproof, your windproof, your waterproof, your everything, you know, your breathability factor now and not the five millimeter neoprene that you used to wear every day clomping through the mud, the banded uninsulated waders that you love to wear in the conditions that you hunt and the weather temperatures down there. Very important, right? To keep your guides and your clients comfortable on a daily basis. Cause y'all aren't just hunting once a week, you're hunting seven days a week. You want right. to be comfortable and dry, right? And warm. Yeah, no, we are. And then we, yeah, we started wearing the banded waders about four years ago, you know, from all of us. Um, we do, we run them seven days a week. The guides are pushing them hard. They're in and out of pit blinds They're in brush. Um, we're walking through, you know, different oaks and, you know, just at, we're kind of in all types of environments. Um, they've, they've held out extremely well. We, we've ripped some. We've got some leaks uh, banded. We send them back. A new set's coming right now. Um, so uh, they've held up amazing. Uh, I'm on my third season with one of my pairs that I have down at the Brady, the Duck Club in the Sink. Um, I have the ones that I use out for when I'm goose hunting. And then I have my halves, my little halves for what I use when it's uh, my pants waders, I think you call them. I use those early in the season um, when it's dry um, and a little bit of moisture and all that. Yeah, uh, your waste waders. What's that? Your waste waders. Waste waders. Um, those work really well. The uh, But we've had a good time with that. The rain jackets are great. I got the two rain jackets. I got the lighter one and I got the heavier uh, material one for when it's really wet with the nice um, cuffs on the wrist. Uh, when you're calling all the time, uh, that's the main place where you get wet is down the neck and down the arm line right there at the wrist. Uh, the water will run in there and, you know, being able to suck that up tight has really helped a lot with not getting wet. Um, you know, it's, and it's usable. I mean, there's lots of pockets and zippers on it that you can put your phone and your calls in and different things that you bring to the field. It's, so, right? it's, it's well thought out by guys that have spent countless days and yes. hours, hours and days in the field that say, man, I wish I had this right. And then you, you know, and that's what bandit has done. Christian and Eric and the designers have done an extraordinary job. And a lot of manufacturers have, I mean, we're again, we're in the golden age. We have the best gear to where you could put a, a down vest over your, your compression underwear and then a light jacket on top of it. And your body heat stays inside your internal temperature stays there. Mix that with the breathability of the waders to where you're setting up a decoy spread in the morning, even on a dry field with you when you're in two inches of water, your guys are wearing waders a lot. So they're instead of knee boots. So they're, they're, they're working for two hours before the sun even comes up. They're not developing a lot of perspiration in there and it's breathing and it's allowing that sweat to release. No perspiration. And, so now you go and you sit down and you start calling and you're laying there for countless hours and getting up once in a while to retrieve birds or work your dog and handle your dog. You have a chance to start, you know, getting cold in the old days. And now the breathability and the technology behind these, you know, with, with what we have in the insulation part of it, in the, in the weatherproof part of it, in the windproof part of it, in the rain, the waterproof part of it, it all goes together and it makes for a very 
nice and comfortable experience and rewarding experience to where the next day you go and hang your waders and you're excited to get back in that gear because yeah. it, it, it almost made, it made you look good. It made you perform good. It made you feel cool and not cool. Like in, you know, you know, I'm talking hypothetically, like we're, we feel cool, right? Yeah. In the clothes yeah. these days, I'm not saying that you stay cool or cold in them. So I, well, it's, we, yeah, we've evolved with them and you're right. I mean, there's so many different styles and different layering systems today. Um, and you nailed it. I mean, the layering systems, you know, California, you know, you know, our weather patterns out here, it can be, it can be, you know, 27, 25, one morning, and then you can have a week of you know at 50 degrees you know and we're hunting in these extreme swings of temperatures um and different elements we have a lot of rain uh, we don't have the snow out here you know in the valley that other states do in northeastern california does so um, i can't speak for that as much but um you know i did hunt you know up there with our friends up there in alberta i take them and you know i was in you know minus five degrees wearing this gear you know my layering systems and so forth so you know, so, you know, Bandit does have some really good stuff. I mean, and, and, they're, and the nice thing about that company that y'all have is that it's ever evolving. And they do listen to the hunters of what we're experiencing out in the fields so they can better their products. That's what I, that's what I truly appreciate about a company like that. Um, you know, because as I said, you know, advancements are always occurring. And um, what I've learned in life, if we don't open our mind and we don't listen, um, you're going to be always behind, you know, and it takes all of us across the U.S. to communicate with folks like yourself what we need um, and, 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 you know, what can be changed. I mean, somebody could come out with something that think it's the greatest product in the world, but <laughs> only has a use for, you know, 10 people. Well, that's not a very good product. So. Um, it needs to be um, adaptive to different environments and you guys are working on some good stuff. Yeah, I agree. And I appreciate you saying that. And I, you know, what Christian and Eric have done again with the design team and our manufacturing and our, and our, and our vendors and the, and the guys that we associate with, as far as the insulation and all the technology that we're using, it's the brand has, has gotten somewhere to where uh, personally, I never saw it happening when we started it back in 2008. So it's awesome. <laughs> we, with the essentials now, we, we have two left. And I know you're busy. I know you got to get to the almonds. It's that yeah. time of the year. The almonds, Rock. The almonds. The almonds, right? Is that Ammons. how you say it? Almonds. <laughs> They're almonds. Um, dogs. Yeah. Conservation tools. You have, yes. You have a new dog coming up. Your guides have some tremendous dogs. The dog, hey, remind me of Alex's dog's name again. Do you remember it off the top of your head? Bob. Bob. <laughs> Bob. What about Bob? I mean, that dog, that day we were out there with the baseball players. Amazing. Right? <laughs> how many, I mean, it was over a hundred, he 150 retrieves and he just kept going and he just, you know, dogs that can mark and dogs that listen and dogs that, that, that can do blind retrieves and that can handle the right way. It is key in my opinion to have this conservation tool. And I know he's your best friend or she's your best friend and a companion, but Talk to me how important the dogs have been to your operation, to your personally, to Rico, to your guides, to your clients. How important are sporting dogs and duck dogs? Well, um, you know, in the um, all waterfowlers, you know, personally, I think if you can afford it and you have the wherewithal to have a dog, should have a dog. Um, it, it just, I mean, picking up all the birds you harvest in a day is extremely important. Um, 
you know, I'm not saying you're going to get every single one, but for the most part, if you have a good dog that's trained properly, you're not going to leave, uh, you know, many birds behind after through a season. So um, I've got two. I have Bruno and um, we have Roxy and she's in training right now. Bruno's been with me for eight years now. Um, Bruno's a, you know, Bruno's a good dog. He's a nice dog. Um, he's not been the caliber as like his mother was inky, um, or his father hammer. Um, you know, hammer was, um, you know, the quality of like what your dogs are and Bob, um, you know, when I was able to hunt with hammer for those six years, seven years, um, those dogs that are remarkable like that, that mark five birds, um, that retrieve them that are fast and strong and get in and out, you know, immediately from the field and back to the blind. Those, those are, those are exciting days. Um, watching the dog work, um, you know, is, is exciting, if not a little bit more exciting than the actual hunt itself. Um, they are a crucial part of the hunt. So I think that um, it's, it's, it's part of um, water failing. They're essential, uh, the dog. I'll always have one. I, I, as you know, with me, I, I just won't go without one. Well, I agree there. You can you've met all the, all of our partners at you and the nutrition part of it. And I just love that part of the game. I love the fact that you have this animal when they're born, they're this cute little thing that our daughters and sons can't let go of. And then they turn into this machine with this personality and this disposition yeah. and this spark plug, it's like your, your hero, you know, uh, Sylvester Stallone, Rocky Balboa, but the part that he played in over the top, his arm wrestling movie back in the day that you probably watched every night in your dorm room, he would turn <laughs> it, he would turn his hat around backwards and it would start that motor. And it's like, you take, I was talking to Tom, you know, our Tom that you love in, yesterday about one of our dogs is like, you watch Duff. And he's just so laid back now when before he was just nonstop. And then when you take him out of that kennel or out of the house or off of his bed or off of where he places, he turns on to this. He turns into Lincoln Hawk, the the Stallone character on over the top. And he just has this switch. And I love that about a a duck dog that they can go from being your best friend, your companion, chilling in your front seat and just looking at you. And then all of a sudden they turn into this machine that you're like, where did that come from? Well, I think that they, um, and you're right, as they mature, the first three years are, are, (laughs) I mean, shoes get eaten up, you know, whatever's in your garage, all my turkey decoys get chewed on. Uh, Yeah, they find things that they want to chew on and, um, and they're, they're, you know, they're adolescents at that time. Um, But then when they hit four, five, things start mellowing out and they becomes, that's when, like you said, it comes really exciting. Uh, but Bob last year, you know, Bob was a unique dog. Uh, there's not, not sure I've ever really truly seen a dog like Bob um, at a year and a half old. No, that's, um, that's ama- he's an amazing dog. Yeah. That was us. You know, he was truly fun to watch last year and, and to work with. Um, I had an exciting year with him um, and Alex. And, you know, like I said, all my team has good dogs um the merlot team and the guys that are you know part of our company um they take this job really seriously so you know the guiding outfitting world um has lots of tools it's not a cheap sport um that we're doing not a cheap business the profit lines are tight and small um you know so uh, we want the best 
out of the equipment we get. Um, and we need it to last. So that's where, you know, I, I went all these years and, you know, kind of bounced around different, um, different guns, different ammo, different decoys, um, you know, and I've settled in with, you know, I, I shoot the Federal, I shoot the Benelli, I wear the banded gear, Avery's the decoys I get, um, you know, but my dogs, you know, I have to change them up every eight years. And when I lost the line from Inky and Hammer, when that line ended, um, it was it was difficult for me. Um, now we have Roxy. Um, Roxy is the, uh, you know, she's a great female. She has no health issues. So um, hopefully we, you know, with your dog and our dogs, we'll, you know, we'll start a new line one day. Um, I, have one, I have some information for you coming in the next 72 hours that I want to get you nice. up to date on, up to date on. So last one moving into it is processing or first butchering processing a sharp knife a grinder a vacuum sealer recipes a traeger the the provider mentality where it all comes full circle sustainability and if you think about sustainability rock merlo you are a farmer you're feeding americans your right. feed, uh, some of your grain goes to feed america's pets and some of your grain a lot of it feeds america's wildlife Deer, turkey, rodents, shorebirds, ducks, geese, you name it, it feeds it. Farmers feed Americans, they feed our pets, and they feed the wildlife. So you think about full circle, 360 degrees sustainability. You're watching land that you're manicuring all year for almonds and walnuts. And then all of a sudden you're harvesting a deer or a turkey out of those orchards, maybe. Then you're watching your rice growth and you're watching it go to the dryer and you're watching it go to market and you're watching it go do everything that it does in the, in the, in the, in what it does for in farming. And now all of a sudden you got your pits in there and you're calling widgeon into a rice, a flooded rice spread or sprig or, or specs sustainability and now you're taking that dead goose and that dead duck and you're feeding your family again that, that, meat that you're eating has the grain in it that you grew all year think yep. about how cool of a freaking lifestyle that is there's nothing there's nothing is no you know until you came along with these podcasts and so forth um people didn't understand that storyline that you just truly laid out i mean now we can share it you know um yeah there was some folks that did them here and there and wrote a little article or something like that but you know what? Articles, they, you know, it's just they get to a certain, they get to the regional type, you know, most of the stuff. Um, you know, and so now we can share these, you know, these, these, you know, start to finish, um, field the table, as you would call it, um, these experiences that we're having and what we are truly, you know, involving our daily lives in you know, of obtaining that speckle belly or that mallard or that deer or turkey or quail. Um, you know, it is, if you think about it, 365, it all comes to a circle every year. It starts all over again. Um, and we're pushing hard right now. We, because of um, our waterfowl business, we push hard to get all of our rice planted. You know, having fallow fields don't help us in the um, fall or the winter. So, 
you know, I want as much of my ground planted as I can and the stuff that we farm for others. Um, and uh, those, those that we work with that we lease, they're pushing us hard too um, because they know the revenue that's coming in that we're giving them. Um, you know, so waterfowling is, a, you know, an incremental part of all of California agriculture, what rice farming that is. So it's, it's right. What, what it does full circle in the provider mentality and just the revenue stream that it's created for these rice farmers in, in Arkansas and Mississippi and Louisiana and California and, and corn farmers. I mean, you go to a cornfield after they take their crop off of it in North Dakota or Idaho or Montana, they're getting leased up by hunters and giving that farmer an extra revenue line. So that mixed in with the fact that you were taking the birds or the deer, or the turkeys or whatever you're eating. And, and, and successfully harvesting and eating as a hunter and a conservationist and you're working hand in hand with the farmer and that's why i'm so proud of our relationship with you cwa companies and brands like nutrient ag solutions um Yukonuba, bush beer anheuser-busch I, the people drink a beer do they really understand how anheuser-busch supports our american farming and how much barley and hops and everything is grown in our american crops and and then the the dog food and what grains they're relying on the farmer for and then that dog runs out and retrieves a bird that's eating the food that the farmer planted and now you put it on a traeger that is owned by a bunch of hunters and that and then you put it in your belly and you're eating that meat that was raised on the grains that the american farmer and the canadian farmer are raising all year. So if you sit down and really show yourself the process, and, and what I always say is I'm in my 40s. I wish I would have had this mentality when I was 20. Now I understand in life, everything's a maturity deal and your, your party phase, and then you go into the girl phase and the marriage phase and the kids phase. And it, it's all an evolution. You just keep revolving and evolving with the world and the planet earth on that globe and the spiral. And you're, and, and you learn things over the, it, over the years. And as a hunter, I just wish that a 20 year old hunter, you know, he's in his party days in college, right? He's got his girlfriend, right? He's got his new truck or his first truck, right? Well, what if he just took that one part of life and just said, you know what, in my hunting days, I'm going to, I'm going to learn the sustainability and the, you know, and how it all fits together from farming to conservation to politics. And it's a lot, but if you can really get that, the sooner you get the gist of it as a hunter, the pile picks, the blood, the feathers puffing out of a slow motion camera shot, all of that shit doesn't mean anything anymore. And I and get it. I love to shoot. I love to kill. I love to eat. I love it all. But what really means something is when you see the full circle of what the, the mentality of the American hunter has, the American farmer, the American provider. So <clears throat> that's what I like to talk about. I started duck hunting late in life, 26, 27 years old. And now I am addicted to it, but I've also really like to pump the brakes and slow down and think about, man, what is, what's going on in the duck hunting world? Just if somebody would do themselves a favor, go research California Waterfowl Association's egg salvage program and just see the communication that's going on with farmers now in these different parts of California that are saving the nest, going to the incubator, being hatched at Rancho Esquan and other places and then being raised and then being released back into the wild all along different parts of the California coast, the California inland. And just, that's just one example. So anyway, I just, I get goosebumps, no pun intended, thinking about how awesome this lifestyle is. And you get to live it even more than I do because you're actually farming. So you have that farming piece tied in. I have the ability and the platform to tell that story of what guys like Brock Merlo are doing. If you're not in the office growing walnuts, 
or Ammons, you're in the office as the board of director, as the chairman of the board of the board of directors of California Waterfowl. So you're helping in conservation, then your philanthropy, and then you're guiding and you're outfitting and you're, 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 and then you're cooking it on a Traeger. And not only that, you're serving this wild game to homeless people during the paradise fire. When all of those people were homeless overnight, you're serving wild game with Guy Fieri to him. You did the spec lunch with Brad Forsyth and, and got, and, and GM Pauly and Ravencroft and all the guys at, down there at, at, at plush. What's the name of the Italian restaurant? Brush. Brush, an amazing place in Chico. So, I mean, if you think about all of the pieces that are moving, all of the balls in the air, it's way more than pulling the trigger and seeing a mallard or a speckle, oh, yeah. speckle belly goose fall out of the air. It's so much more than that. And that's why I wanted to cover these essentials is that those essentials that we talk about, the gear and everything, are only a small part of the big essential of sustainability and evolving or, you know, the way that this whole thing comes full circle with farming and philanthropy and conservation and effort, 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 effort every day. And that's why we need to support CWA and SCI and Ducks Unlimited and even the Autobahn and, and the, and, and all of the different mentorship programs that are out there, Boys and Girls Club. How key is it to get this message into Boys and Girls Club, into 4-H, into Future Farmers of America and the FFA programs in the shooting sports? And now you got Rico that's on a high school shooting team. There's, there's shooting sports all over the country now and shooting teams. And there's never been a more important time, especially right now with this virus that, Hey, our freezers are full, but we're not saying nah, 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 nah. I know you see the memes out there. Like I bet you it's pretty cool to be a hunter right now. It's nothing to rub in. It's time to educate. Like, look, we have the ability to help. We have a unique skill set to be able to help right now and say, Hey, I know that you might not follow my political views. We might not see eye to eye on president Trump or Obama or whoever it was. But what I can do is I can reach in my freezer right now and make sure that your family has some very high protein and rich meals that didn't have a bunch of stuff pumped into them with any, you know, any kind of steroids or anything. Here you go. From the heart of a hunter, this thing was raised in the wild. It ate food that I planted. It was harvested by us, da 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 and it all comes full circle. So kudos to you, Rock Merlo. I appreciate the time. I hope everybody gets something out of the fact that you're working your ass off daily in all of the different areas that we cover today, not to mention all of the feedback you give these manufacturers. You're always coming up with out-of-the-box ideas for Benelli and Federal and Bandit and Avery and Greenhead Gear and Yukonuba. And we've done so much in five years, so much, you know, fast. Just the party we threw for Yukonuba with Yukonuba in Vegas. It was amazing the doors that opened that night. I keep getting messages about what's still happening because of the energy in the room that night. So thank you. Um, I don't know what else to say. We're, we'll be, I, I was supposed to be down there today's Friday. I was supposed to be there last night, getting ready to call a gobbler with you today. And instead of hunting, we're, 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 we're still working. We're taking yeah. something out of it. Right. Yeah, it was. And it's unfortunate. We had our, we had the nutrient hunt that was supposed to have taken place Tuesday and Wednesday. Yep. Um, that got canceled and your hunt today and tomorrow was canceled, but we have this podcast today, and then when I get off of this podcast in an hour from now, we have our CWA board meeting that is the first board meeting that we've ever had online, and like I said, through the WebEx, and it, uh, it's an interesting day, and then this afternoon, I'm probably going to head up to the hills and probably go turkey hunting. <laughs> I'll do my social distancing. You are going to do some social distancing. Yeah, we're going after Miriam's today. So should be exciting. Alan sent us a Miriam decoys. Oh. Awesome. All right. Well, good luck to you. Thank you for everything. You yep. guys check out Merlot. Thank, 
Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for the friendship. You guys check out Merlot Waterfowl. He's been on several episodes of the Fowl Life podcast, California Waterfowl Association. Please become a member no matter where you live, calwaterfowl.org. Everything starts in California and moves eastward. And when I say that, I need you to take me serious and really look into it. Do your due diligence and look at what's going on at the state capitol, Capitol Hill, Sacramento, what the senators, what the assemblymen are fighting for, what CWA is fighting for, for hunters' rights all over the country. They need to be on a national level, and it's $35 a year, and that money goes to help them and all of their initiatives from their college camps to their youth camps to their women in the outdoors to egg salvage to their banquet program get involved calwaterfowl.org become a life member become a gold member a silver member but no matter what become a 35 a year member get the magazine read it educate yourself and let's start supporting hunters all over the country i don't care if you live in southern florida new york or in Arkansas, where they call it the duck capital of the world. I want everybody to support Cal Waterfowl, become a member, and let's stand together in this fight that Rocky's been leading for the past 15 years. His dad, Larry, was a trailblazer. They continue to kick ass in California. Let's all support them. I'm Chad Belding. This has been another episode of the Foul Life Podcast. Tom, please hit that button. This is 2AM Logic. The song is called My Foul Life.